Hi, it's Marco here. Just before we get started with this episode, I wanted to let you know that this episode is available on our YouTube channel as a video podcast as well. So you can see not only myself and Tarek, but this week's brilliant guest. So head on over there. We've put a link in the podcast description and you can watch this episode as well as listen to it. So why not do that and uh, give us a follow while you're there? That would be great. But now we'll get straight into the episode. Hi and welcome to episode 139, page one, the writer's podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing journeys, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And this is uh, one of a special series of episodes where we've been looking at the publishing industry to try and find out how to turn that manuscript that you've written into a book and today into possibly... Mm. A Hollywood movie. It's very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting indeed. We're chatting with Bob Bookman, who is a big wig Hollywood superstar legend. He's worked with people like Michael Crichton, biggest, Thomas Harris. Biggest ever. Biggest ever book, book to, to screen sale. Deal. I mean, incredible. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And he's got some great stories about working with some of the people that you'll all recognize on the films you've all heard of. And yeah, he's a kind of dream. You know, his is, this is the dream goal. Isn't yeah, it? if you've if you've written your book and and you you hear that Bob is interested, in it, <laughs> yeah. then you can you, you can, can start that... picking out picking out that house in the Hollywood <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hills. I think. Yeah, it's no, a great but it, he he's he's a really interesting guy. He's been in Hollywood for years. He's got some amazing stories, but also some really practical uh, insights into what it is that makes a book attractive to yep. a Hollywood to Hollywood. So. Um, I hope you enjoy it. We really enjoyed speaking with Bob and uh, we'll get straight into it now. So on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realise you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. 
So I can't ask my usual starting question, which is, did you always want to be a writer? So instead, I will ask, um, (laughs) how did you get into the world of literary agency, first of all? Well, I'll try and make it brief, but it's sort of interesting that I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, which forget that that's unusual. My mother was born and raised in Los Angeles. So she grew up with the children of the first generation of executives and uh, producers and so forth, as a result of which I was raised to see the, see them as literally those people, as in people we didn't associate with. <laughs> but at the same time, it was... Uh, before the rise of private schools in Los Angeles, the private schools were either military schools or sectarian schools or for problem kids. So, for example, Liza Minnelli was in my class in grammar school. <laughs> Frank Sinatra Jr. was the year ahead. Uh, Jamie Grossell, whose father was Jeff Chandler, his real name was Ira Grossell, was in my class. But you didn't think about it. And the one real close friend I made was a a, a guy named Jeff Pasternak. And his father was Joe Pasternak, who was a big producer of musicals at MGM at that time. And every Saturday, Joe's driver, Ben, would bring Jeff and pick me and a couple other kids up, take us down to the Thalberg building and run a movie for us. And one day, Joe came in and said, boys, I'm going to take you on a soundstage. We've never been on a soundstage. He took us on the set of Forbidden Planet. Oh, wow. So that was like an amazing event in my childhood, but it wasn't like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. So I went off to, um, I mean, I changed my mind a bunch of times, but ultimately I was a European history major in college and it's still like my passion. I love history. And when I was going to graduate, I applied to history graduate schools, but I didn't really think academia was for me. I applied to international studies schools consistent with the interest. And I applied to law schools, just why not? And I got into Yale Law School, which is not even arguably, it is the best law school and the hardest one to get into in the country. One reason, because it's so small, the, the entering class at Harvard Law School is bigger than the entire Yale Law School, for example. And this was the year that graduate, remember the war in Vietnam? You guys probably studied that in school. So this was (laughs) the year that the uh, deferments for graduate school were ended, which meant I could be drafted. But I went off and started at Yale and I was classified 1A, which meant you're next, buddy. And when I had been at Berkeley, somebody had said to me, you know, it'd be really smart to go over to the Presidio, which was the army base in San Francisco, at the uh, bay, southern end of the Golden Gate Bridge, and just put your name on waiting lists for army reserve units. So I did that. And I'd been at Yale for about a month. And I got a letter from one of them saying, your name came up, show up on this date and you're in the unit or else, you know, we'll go to the next name. And it was unbelievably painful. So I dropped out of law school, drove back to Los Angeles, lived with my parents, commuted up to San Francisco one weekend a month, hoping that I would get called up in time to do my 120 days minimum active duty and get back to law school in the fall. But in between, what I did was I read all the novels that I hadn't read as a history major, and I started going to movies. And suddenly I went 
just crazy about movies because there were these repertory theaters in Los Angeles that showed all the then European classics and so forth. And when I went back to Yale, I met a kid that had similar interest and we started something called the Yale Law School Film Society. And that is actually how I got into the business. That's how I met people because my family clearly wasn't going to be any help. And through that, uh, because this was 1979 to 70, 69 to 72. So a lot of the great directors from the early days were still alive, mostly ignored by everybody except the French and Andrew Saris and waiting for someone to call and say, my name is Bob Bookman. Uh, I run something called the Yale Law School Film Society. How would you like to come to Yale and be honored? So I brought Fritz Lang, I brought King Vidor, I brought um, Frank Capra, I became all but an adopted son of Raoul Walsh, all the <laughs> amazing directors. And it was just, and at the same time, this was following Easy Rider when all the youth movement movies were being made and some of them actually appealed to somebody's intelligence. And so I had connections at all the studios and I would get content like Milos Forman came with taking off Marty Ritt with the Marty Molly Maguire's I had Sam Peckinpah with an uncut print of the wild bunch. Wow. I mean, this is what I did for three years. It was That's like amazing. Amazing because Yale then was on pass or fail. And I and it was actually became honors uh, pass low pass fail. I actually got honors in one class, and I can't figure out why. So anyway, when I graduated, I think you know I've, I've gone to law school for three years. I'm not going to throw it away. I'm going to I'm going to take the California bar. So I came back, lived at my grandmother's house. And my mother's calling her every day and saying, you have to throw Bob out on the street. He doesn't have a job. He's thrown away a three-year loss, Yale Law School education to work with those people. My grandma, I can't do that to my grandson. So this was a downturn. I'm sorry, this is going on so long. No, it's great. It was a, a downturn in the business at that time. So I had, because of my connections, I had all these meetings, all this encouragement, all these referrals to other people and no job offers. And a guy I had met in New York at Universal said to me, have you considered the agency business? And I literally said, what's the agency business? Because at that time, if you thought about an agent, it was like a PR agent or you know, an a, uh, ad agent or something like that. I didn't know what an agent was. And he said, well, really everything in the movie business now goes through the agency business. It's a nexus for whatever happens. And if you become an agent in five years, you'll either love it and you'll just do that. You'll understand the business. So if you want to be an executive or a producer, you'll be able to do that. But I really strongly advise you to do that. So the three big agencies then were William Morris, um, CMA, which was a spinoff from when Universal, uh, when MCA, which was the biggest agency, bought Universal in 1962, the Justice Department said, you, these were the quaint days of antitrust, you can't own both a major agency and a major studio. And literally, Lou Wasserman allowed the Bobby Kennedy Justice Department, and he was like Mr. Democrat in California, Lou Wasserman, to literally padlock the door of the MCA agency. So it basically atomized. 
And I think it was because Lou Wasserman didn't want a powerful, an agency as powerful as MCA to deal with running universal. So one of the many agencies that was set up was CMA noticed the same letters. And that was Freddie Fields and David Beagleman. And then the third one was IFA, which was a spinoff of AFA, which was Ashley Famous Agency. Ted Ashley had built that up and sold it to Steve Ross. And then when Steve Ross bought Warner Brothers Seven Arts and he owned the agency because of the MCA precedent, he knew he had to divest himself of the agency. So Marvin Josephson, who had a agency in New York called Associated Artists, I think it was called, he mostly represented very high-end newscasters and Captain Kangaroo. And he bought IFA and AFA made it IFA, International Famous Agency. And if uh, unusually, both IFA and CMA were publicly held. I mean, the idea of an agency, even though Endeavor is now being publicly held, just the scrutiny is just, you know, how do you explain the gifts? And anyway, so what happened is... Um, So what happened is that I got my grandfather, who had recently died, knew Abe Lassvogel. Abe Lassvogel had been William Morris's office boy, and he ran William Morris. And he was a legend, and he was old, and he was five feet tall. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story about that. So when I finally got in to see Abe Lassvogel, it's the only meeting I've ever had in which the person's desk was on a platform. That's how short Abe Lassvogel was. <laughs> and he's sitting there like this on his desk. And he says, Mr. Bookman, before we begin, let me first tell you that there are no, unemplo- there are no employment opportunities at the Morris office. Now, how may I help you? Well, <laughs> one agency down. Anyway, the, the joke was that uh, Jennings Lang, who was a very famous agent at MCA and then later at Universal and who who I knew a little, he was at least 6'6". And supposedly, if you were a William Morris agent, you couldn't be taller than Abe Lassvogel. And Jennings Lang represented Joan Bennett, who was married to Walter Wanger, who found out that his wife was having an affair with her agent and famously accosted Jennings Lang in the parking lot of a delicatessen in Beverly Hills and shot him in the groin which earned him the nickname Jenning and which got a year in jail for Walter Wanger. So the joke was if it had been a William Morris agent, the shot would have blown his head off anyway. <laughs> that's the joke. Okay. So now I get in through somebody had introduced me to Jack Gilardi who had been married to Annette Funicello, which still was. And as he said, I married a star and turned into an unknown Jack and I could not have been more different. And for whatever reason, he just took an immediate uh, interest in me and said, I'm getting you a meeting with David Beagleman. We have to hire you. So I go in to see David Beagleman and I still can visualize it. He had this sort of long wood desk. He's on the phone talking to Charlie Joffe, who is Woody Allen's manager and producer about Woody Allen. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is where it all happens. This is so great. I don't get an offer. Why don't I get an offer? I think because when the Beagleman scandal broke a few years later, one of the things that came out was that he lied that he had gone to Yale. And I think he would have thought this kid will figure out I didn't go there. 
<laughs> so that left IFA. And it took me a really long time. And I finally got in to see a man named Frank Konigsberg, who was co-head of television packaging. Now, I didn't own a television then. And he was the head of the West Coast office. And he had gone to Yale Law School. Anyway, I get to see Frank. And we're, I'm in there for about 20 minutes. And it turns out, serendipitously, his administrative assistant had taken a job at CBS the week before, entry-level executive job, and he needed an administrative assistant. And he literally said, you seem like a fairly intelligent young man. How would you like to start Monday? I didn't say, what's my salary? What's my?" I said, what time do you want me? <laughs> and that's how I got in the agency business. And uh, it was um, it was just a great, great opportunity. And I started out in television packaging, which was great because you get to make a lot of deals. And if you make mistakes, you're on to the next deal and it doesn't matter. So it was really great training. And Bob Broder, who ran the TV department between him and Frank, really trained me. And I'll just tell you a funny story about each. Well, actually, literally the first day I'm in Bob Broder's office sitting on his couch, he hands me a three-page proposal for a TV series. I read this. And I say, Bob, this is terrible. And you know what he said to me? Sell it, don't smell it. And I said to myself, if that's what it takes to survive as an agent, I should just quit now. Because I'm not capable of doing that. So anyway, I'm that six months later, I'm we're out in the Burbank then where Columbia Pictures television was at the time when it was called Screen Gems. And Bob says to me, So when we get back to the office, I want you to do, I don't even remember what he said, but I said to him, I can't do that, Bob. He goes, Why not? I go, You need to be an agent to do that. I'm an administrative assistant. He goes, Ah, eh, you're an agent, go do it. Now, when I was at CAA, if you got promoted to be an agent, you would think white smoke was coming out of a chimney on the roof. That's how big a deal it was. But Bob was angry. So that's how he became an agent. <laughs> and Frank, because it was very small television packaging department, we'd meet around um, you know, the, the coffee table, couch and chairs in his office, and he'd go around the room. And it was my first or second meeting. Remember, I'm administrative assistant, which, by the way, meant I never was in the mailroom, which is quite an achievement at a major agency. So he says, uh, so, Bob, what do you have? I go, nothing, Frank. He goes, I'm going to try and do Frank. Bob. You're only invited to attend these meetings because you're expected to make a contribution. If you don't have a contribution to make, then just don't bother to come. So I had a contribution to make at every meeting after that. Great training. <laughs> so now about six months later, I'm finally getting the answer to your question. About six months later, um, oh, the, so two years after I start, Marvin acquires CMA, and that's how ICM is created. IFA and CMA together equal ICM. And CMA had this killer motion picture department, and IFA had the killer television department. But I always wanted to be a movie agent. And I was trying to scheme it when I was at uh, IFA, and I just never could. They wanted me to be a television packaging agent. Mike Metaboy, by the way, was head of the motion picture department until he left to be head of... Um, West Coast production for United Artists. So 
about six months after the merger, I go to see Marvin Josephson. And I said, Marvin, um, I've been giving you 100% of my brain and none of my heart because my heart is in the movie business and I want to give you 100% of my brain, 100% of my heart. Please make me a movie agent. And he said, well, I, I have a problem with that. I said, well, what's your problem? He goes, you don't have any clients because when you're in TV packaging, you're representing companies. He said, you don't have any clients. And the the old CMA motion picture agents, which was Sue Mingers, Guy McElwain, Freddie Fields was still there, Jeff Berg, uh, Jack Gilardi, uh, they'll eat you alive. Yeah, they're like piranhas. You won't survive. I go, I don't care. You've got to figure out to make it happen for me. So I'm like, let me think about it. And he called me in a week later and gave me the biggest opportunity in my career. And he said, you know, our New York publications department, which with the exception of one or two younger agents was the old MCA publications department. The New York publications department, we've never really had a rational approach to selling the rights to the books they represent for publishing to film and television. I am giving you that franchise. You are representing the material from the New York publications department and I want you to build your own list of screenwriters and directors. I mean, I'll tell you who wow. the, the agents were. And they were all, with one exception, in their late 60s and 70s. So Audrey Wood, who was about, she was probably shorter than Abe Lasvogel. Audrey Wood had discovered Tennessee Williams and all his early plays are dedicated to her, as an example. Um, Phyllis Jackson represented Ian Fleming and Dr. Seuss. I think Dr. Seuss is still the biggest income earner for ICM. Uh, 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 Monica McCall, I literally represented Graham Greene through Monica McCall. I sold the rights to the human factor. I never met Graham Greene, unfortunately, but I was his agent for this. And then Kay Brown, who was very famous because she had been David O. Selznick's story editor and was widely believed that it was she who read Gone with the Wind and not David O. Selznick. And in fact, she represented the Margaret Mitchell estate along with Arthur Miller and other great people. And then the young agent who was then about 35 was Lynn Nesbitt. And Lynn represented, among many other writers, represented um, Michael Crichton, John Gregory Dunn, um, Anne Rice, uh, Tom Wolf. I mean, on and on. Wow. The, all the all these people became my clients, and it was just this. I was still in my twenties. It was an extraordinary opportunity. And just to give you again an example about lessons learned, Phil Jackson calls me. I've been doing this for about ten minutes, and she says. I even, it was called Murder in Coweta County by Mary Lee Settle. She said, I want you to read this book and tell me what you can do with it. I go, great. She said, when will I hear from you? I said, Monday morning. She said, perfect. I get a call at 9.01. Why haven't I heard from you? That's the discipline that I learned. So it was this amazing opportunity and starting and, and the the breakthrough deal that I made was Robert Daly, who was not a client of ICM's, he was a client of Sterling Lord, wrote a book called um, Prince of the City. And it was about a New York cop named Bob Lucy, who Esther Newberg, who had just been hired by Lynn Nesbitt, 
um, represented. So the deal was Sterling represented the publishing rights, we represented the film rights. So I read the book and I call, I remember whoever I called, I said, I have a, a suggestion to make. The, the book was called Princes of the City. And I said, I think we should change the name to Prince of the City. That way we attract the movie star. So they changed it to Prince of the City. And I sold the book to uh, Arthur Krim and Mike Medavoy at United Artists for um, $500,000, which was an amazing and still a lot of money. But then it was just, an, and yeah. it was just the first of a whole series of books. I then got a call from uh, Lynn one day saying, I'm sending you a manuscript by another doctor turned writer named Robin Cook. He worships Michael Crichton and he's trying to be Michael Crichton. And the book was called Coma. And I read the manuscript to Coma and I said, this is a great movie. And I knew Michael Crichton a little and I called him up because remember, he'd only done his own material up to that point. And I said, I really think you need to read this book. I think it's a movie for you. And he read it and committed to it and then made me his agent because he said I was the only person that had ever sent him a piece of material that he wanted to do. Brilliant. So that's how I started to represent Michael Crichton. So I'm going to end this part of it by saying that um, in my mind, idiotically, I really wanted to be a studio executive. And when an opportunity came to me in the summer of 1979, so I'd been doing this aspect of the business a little over four years, I took it. And I ended up being a studio executive for six years. And my kind of funny line is Moses spent 40 years in the desert. I only spent six and at the end of the six years, when I had painted myself into a corner and just thought my career was over, and then I said, you know, the only time I was really happy and satisfied and had real gratification in my work was when I was an agent. And to be out of the agency business for six years or even less and go back and be as successful, if not more than you were, was unprecedented. And Mike Ovitz gave me that opportunity to go to CAA. And All right, that's that's phase one. That's phase Back one, which is it's some some phase to to have. You know, it sounded like in a way you were there, almost not quite at the start, but at the start of it, grow, the growth of this uh, no. part of the industry. I think uh, what what was it, and maybe what is it still about a book or a piece of literature that 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 stands out to you that that makes you think this can turn into a movie because obviously there are a lot of great books um, out there that might never be suitable to be turned into a movie. So what is, is there a special thing that, that you look yeah. for or is it just, yeah, a I would say things, I would say it's a cluster of things that just come together or in some combination, because one of the problems with great books, especially novels, right. Is most of it is inside the character's head. Mm -hmm. And how do you show inside the character's head on screen? It's very hard. It's better to do a really good book than a great book. Because yeah. a really good book might be more narratively um, uh, written. So what I, th I would say I look for various things. I look for complex characters that you can relate to. I look for go going to a place you've never been before. 
for example, I don't know, it's a, a, a series now. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, Tokyo Vice. Um, oh, I've heard about it. I've not seen yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. the Michael Mann? Yeah, because it takes you in Japan, inside the newspaper business, inside the, you know, um, all these different parts of Japan that you've never seen before. The Yakuza. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that to me is really, conflict is really important, Right. Uh, and what, you know, what are the problems that the hero has to solve? It's kind of, you know, there's a famous line that Potter Stewart, who was um, associate justice of the Supreme Court, he was put on the court by Eisenhower, and he was the uh, author of many of the early uh, obscenity decisions that really opened up the First Amendment to free speech. And a journalist said to him, uh, Mr. Stewart, Mr. Justice Stewart, how do you define obscenity? And he famously said, I know it when I see it. And in a sense, that's kind of what it is. But you know it when you see it because you've read so much, you've thought about it so much, your instincts are kicking in, as opposed to saying, I'm looking for X, Y, Z. I read this and I just, I know how to sell this. I know how to sell this. And then as a as a follow-on, so you've 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 got the book, you've read it and you think this is a movie. Um, how do you know where to go next? You know, do you have relationships with edit, with executives of studios? Do you know sure. which studio would be a good fit for it? How do you take that forward? Well, that's a really good question. First thing is, does the author have existing relationships? Um secondly, do you want to go to all the studios or do you just want to go to one? I mean, you don't want to discriminate uh, against studios. One of my uh, aphorisms is it's really hard to sell a book for a lot of money. It's real, sorry, it's really easy to sell a book for a lot of money. It's really hard to sell a book for a lot of money and not make enemies. So my goal was always don't make enemies. And that is be transparent, set at the outset, the rules, don't change the rules. And treat everybody equally, but if you're going to treat somebody special, make it clear why. And if there are multiple buyers and it's a high-profile, high-end book, have the author decide who he wants to be the buyer on creative basis, not on a business basis. So you don't get, you don't get questioned, and then you get to make the next deal. So that's pr- so when I used to appear before, um, you know, symposiums and panels and stuff, I would always get asked or inevitably. So, Mr. Bookman, you have a new piece of material that you're going to sell. What's your thought process in terms of how you come up with your sales plan? And I would say, well, you know, I do something that I don't think any other agent here does. The first thing I do is read the material. And it always got a laugh. And the funny thing is, if you ask people that have known me a long time, say, what do you think of Bob Bookman? They'll go, well, you know, he reads. (laughs) So in Hollywood, that's an exceptional trait. Oh, my God, he reads. And and what sort of relationship do you have with, like you said earlier, um, you you sold the rights to one of Graham Greene's books, but you'd never actually met him. What sort of relationship do you have to the authors of books themselves? Do you do you have a close relationship or does it depend? It depends. If it in that case, I was obviously very young. Mm-hmm. 
he was in the UK. And in fact, Monty McCall was the co-agent of his agent in London, who was a woman named Lady Green, who was married to Graham Green's brother, and who I thought must be this elegant English, you know, aristocrat. And when I finally met her, she was this brassy blonde from Philadelphia who had married Graham Greene's brother. And because he was Sir, I'm trying to remember, but I used to remember whatever it was, she became Lady Green. <laughs> Elaine, that was Lady Elaine Green. So, but on the other hand, like, yeah, Michael Crichton or Tom Wolfe. I mean, I, I have a, you know, one-on-one relationship where John Irving uh, with the writers and and I would say the farther into it, I got the closer I was to to the authors so that they they trusted me and we had a and and one of the other things which often happens with other agents, frankly, is they cut co-agents out of the conversation. So, for example, I have a lot of British clients who have UK agents. Right. And I represent them here. I always keep the agents informed. A lot of agents here don't. Um, so that's important. And, and it, equally, the co-agent in New York, who is the publishing agent, they're not really involved in the sale, although I have always, someone like Lynn Nesbitt was always interested in it. So it's, again, you just have to be really sensitive to the human aspect of it, because you want to be able to get the next client and make the next deal. And do you think when, when an author is writing a book, um, is it important for them and again, I guess it depends on the kind of genre they're working in, et cetera, but it's important for them to have one eye on the market, you know, on, if, if they're wanting to maybe get it be into film, is that something they should always be keeping in mind and writing it in a way that's filmic no. or do you think no. not at all? No. I think you fall between the stools. <laughs> I think yeah. if you have an inherent ability to write things that are commercial, you're going to do what you do anyway. And if you're going to try and do that, you're going to fail. It's going to come off as he's trying to write something commercial that really yeah. is. No, I think you just have to be yourself and, you know, have put your best work out there. Uh, uh, you know, fairly frequently, I would, especially a first time uh, author whose book I was going to sell would say, I want to be attached as the, um, I want to be attached to write the screenplay. Like, okay, I'll make the deal if you want that way. But let me explain to you what the buyer is going to say. They don't want you. They want to go with an established screenwriter. So whatever money they're paying you, they otherwise would be paying another screenwriter. And unless you're a one in a whatever exception, you're going to deliver your script and they're going to want to replace you with another writer. But under the WGA credit rules, you are almost inevitably going to get first person shared screenplay credit. And a really good writer isn't going to want to share second position with you. So if you want me to sell it on that basis, I'm happy to do it. But my advice to you is if you want to be a screenwriter, write a screenplay. And almost everybody adhered to that advice. Similar thing is when people want creative control, right? I want to, I want the, to be able to do X, Y, and Z, authorized scripts. I go, here's what I think. I can negotiate all that. It'll be in the contract. But what happens if they breach the contract? What's your recourse? You have to sue them. You can't enjoin them. You have to sue them. So that means four years before you actually get into court, dragging whatever dirt about you they can through the mud, unbelievable legal fees, 
and you don't even know if you're going to win. So my advice to you is get into business with someone you trust and feel comfortable with going in and don't worry about what the contract says. And in terms of screenwriting itself, in, in the period that you've, you've worked in Hollywood, it, has it, would you say, is it possible to say, is it easier or harder to break into that world now? Screenwriting? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that was one of your questions. How do you advise someone? Um, I think good material always surfaces. Um, what you need to do, and this requires sort of, if you will, a slightly entrepreneurial spirit, you need to get someone whose opinion matters mm-hmm. to read your material and call an agent and say, Bob, you've never heard of this writer. I read a script over the weekend. You really should read it. I'm going to read it. If I get it on almost any other place, at best, it'll go into a slush pile or go to some reader or whatever. But you really need someone whose advice is respected, a producer, an executive, maybe another writer, director, maybe a lawyer. But you need to have the connections. Yeah. And it's funny because... Because yeah. you know, there's there's people trying to break in with uh, new ideas, and and it always seems to me that Hollywood is a place where there's a lot of gamble in terms of you know there's a lot of money gets spent on a project that might not go anywhere or might not be successful, and 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 I'd be interested to know if you agree or not, but whether you think there's a lot of recycling of ideas and projects now. I mean, we're looking at you know even looking at Michael Crichton, for instance, you've got the Jurassic World movies, you've oh, got mate. Westworld TV show, you know all of his projects kind of coming back to the foreground again and bigger than they ever were 20, 30 years on. Is that something which is quite good in a, from the point of view? I guess it's quite good from the point of view of your clients because it's work that they don't need to do again, which they get money off and stuff. But is it, are we seeing more of a, of a loop happening in the I in think industry? you're saying, and it may be just the way it feels, much more reliance on sequels and remakes. Yeah. just And it's just, it's sad because it's just, emblematic of lack of creativity Mm -hmm. and um it's you know like you say it it benefits in the in the narrow sense the the author and so forth but it's not good news for the business or whatever and we go through these cycles like you say it's absolutely true is that is that a a lack of risk taking on the part of you know because people are still writing original things i would have thought but they're just not being picked up by people i think right it's tough. It's tough. And again, maybe you need an element attached to it, you know, yeah. the, the proverbial packaging and so forth. Mm-hmm. And there's no one answer to what enables you to sell something. I mean, yeah. one thing is budget, you know, I mean, it's easier to get a certain kind of indie film made because the risk is less. And you have an actor who at least is perceived as giving value added or director is giving value added. But it's like there's now the, you know, the big franchise film business and there's the film business. It yeah. used to be, you yeah. know, there was the action film business and the film business. There's always some version of that. And it's just, for me, a different business from the business I'm in. And, and, and what's the impact that, you know, recently we've seen the rise of Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus, all these streaming services coming in, which have really, you know, flipped the script on what tv can do you know we've seen the budget etc grow massively in the tv side of things which we never saw 20 years ago 
and it's almost becoming more like Hollywood in that sense. And, and, and is that good in the sense that you've got more opportunities for authors and writers to get their work out there? Or is it, is it, is it harder? No, I think it's good. It just, it's more, more possible buyers. And, you know, another Bob uh, aphorism was, you know, uh, a book can be 200 pages, a book can be 600 pages, but a script can only be 120. Mm-hmm. Well, now with limited series, uh, 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 it could be 200 or 600. You know, and I think that that creates great opportunities and a number of things are being remade, I think, correctly, because when they were made, they were by, you know, they were yeah. cut to, to conform to the 120 minutes. And now they can be, you know, a limited series. Yeah, I think it's great. And but sorry, still, no, I'm just saying a lot of stuff being remakes actually I've, I've paid interesting i mean this is sort of both about my taste and not being fast enough if you will so the new york review of books which you know is fantastic and they have their own publishing arm and they mostly publish sort of really high-end quality paperbacks many of which are reprints of things that haven't been in print for a long time so there was a ad within one of the uh, issues of the York Review of Books of their film noir library, books that they're selling. And I'm reading it, and three in particular caught my eye. The first was In a Lonely Place, because I always thought that as sort of a second-rate Humphrey Bogart film. And when I read the two-paragraph summary, it was like, this is a two-hander for two actresses. This sounds great. And I never heard of the author whose name is Dorothy B. Hughes. So I get the book, I read the book, and I go, this is fantastic. I have to call Hannah Mangella at Columbia and see if you know I can get them to develop this with me. And she says, you're a couple months late. I said, what do you mean? She says, Barbara Broccoli, who would produce Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, right? Which is about Gloria Graham went and looked at the Gloria Graham oeuvre and she loved the, and read the book and she came to me. So she's going to produce it. This was like four years ago. And I actually emailed Barbara recently because I know her very well and said, you know, I really think you need help on this. You're so busy with James Bond. You don't have time for this. So I'm still hoping. (laughs) Then the second one was Jeffrey Rogue Mail by Jeffrey Household. It was written in 1938 and it was made as a Fritz Lang movie in 1941 called Manhunt with um, about a big game hunter hunting Adolf Hitler. The book in 1938, it was, as I recall, it was the equivalent of Hitler, but I think he was Polish or something, wasn't named. But I read the book and it was like, oh my God, it's much more interesting than Manhunt. And I, that was Fox. So I called, I think Elizabeth Gabler was still there. And she said, you're too late, Benedict Cumberbatch. Just, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we, we put it aside for him. And then the third one, which is, you know, what you probably know, which was Nightmare Alley, which yeah. I always loved. I mean, by far Edmund Goulding's best film. And Benicio del Toro had already, uh, I mean, Guillermo del Toro rather, had already fingered that one. So it's like, I guess my instincts are good. I'm just not fast <laughs> yeah, enough. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you still got the instincts, though, as you say. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That keeps me going, you know. Um, recently, I think I'm right in saying you moved from, in terms of title, from agent to manager. 
And I just wondered if that, what the difference between those sure. roles are. Really good question. Really good question. And it wasn't that recent. I can't believe I'm saying this. It was five years ago, March. Okay. I mean, it feels like it was last week. Okay. So in the state of California, agents are licensed by the state labor board. And it limited certain limitations, like you can only uh, take a 10% commission maximum, but it gives you exclusive right to seek employment and negotiate terms of employment. But because of the agencies, there's something called the ATA, the Association of Talent Agencies, that has a if you will, collective bargaining agreement with the guilds. And under that agreement, agents cannot be producers. Right. And so that's sort of, the, and, but until recently they could package, which, you know, was a huge, I mean, that's what drove these agents, the big mm -hmm. agents, television packaging. Managers, interestingly, are not licensed. They, a manager in theory, can't seek employment. A manager, in theory, can't negotiate terms of a deal, but a manager can produce. And managers, I mean, again, it's such a fluid thing. You theoretically have fewer clients. You can spend more time with them creatively. I mean, the first time when I was an agent, I heard the word literary manager. I thought it was an oxymoron. And so, and I was always very critical of what I thought was hypocrisy of managers who were also producers because of the inherent conflicts of interest. So when I became a manager and a producer, I said, for a particular client, I will be one or the other, I won't be both. Because I don't want to, I don't want to be involved with conflict of interest. So I think, again, especially in the earlier days of literary management, they were real literary managers were really good at identifying new talent that agents didn't have time or interest to um, nurture and nurturing them. So they were in effect in their lives forever. And at the other end, writers that had formerly had really big careers that were on, you know, in the descendant and boosting that, them back up again. But writers that were in sort of in the heart of success, it was like hard to understand why they needed managers, although many now do. So what's a what's a day to day life, a life in your job right now? What, what, how does that work? I mean, really, a lot of it is, on the one hand, reactive to problems and situations. And then on the other hand, proactive, finding new material, taking your projects and moving them along to the next step. It's, it's sort of not, it's like each day, which is one of the reasons I like, I've always liked what I do because every day is different. And when I became a studio executive, one of the first things that happened is my blood pressure went up and it's like, <laughs> why is that more stressful than being an agent? And one of the reasons is when you're an agent or a manager, you have 10 crises going on at any particular time, but next week, your 10 crises, nine of them are going to be different from this week's. There's a lot of resolution. And just in terms of who I am, I need resolution. When you're a studio executive, things go on for years, yeah. maybe decades. Yeah. And so, and if 
you're serving as a studio executive at the pleasure and leisure of whoever hired you, who knowing studios isn't going to be there. He may not be there in a year. He may not be there in four years, but he's not going to be there. And whoever comes in is not going to have most likely a relationship with you. And now what are you going to do? As opposed to an agent, if that happens, you've got your clients. Yeah. And before we before we wrap up, I did want to ask about your own writing because you said to me last week that, that you've Wait been working check, exactly. <laughs> you've been working on a book for for some time. I think it was yeah, Is that fair to about, say? about eighteen years now. It's been a real interesting process. I one reason I did it was because I wanted to see what my clients go through, even though I don't consider myself a professional writer. Another was because I had a story that I thought was a really interesting story to tell that was based on something that happened to me. And I wasn't aspiring to compete with, you know, Proust or Joyce, more like uh, in the genre of fatal attraction. And it, and, and I have a great agent, you'll be shocked to hear, who's sitting patiently (laughs) and occasionally reads something I've written. And a few years ago, she basically, I, I said, she, I said to her, Kathy, I don't, I'm not looking for a big advance. She says, I know what you're looking for. You're looking for a $1 advance. They'll assign an editor to work with you. You'll rewrite the book and they'll publish it. I go, yeah. She goes, well, that's fine. Except that's not how publishing works anymore. (laughs) Well, how does it work? Well, you need to deliver a fully edited manuscript. I said, well, how do I do that? And she says, well, I think you need to try and find a freelance editor. I go, well, do you have any in mind? And she represents such, you know, highfalutin clients. No, but I'll see if I can find somebody. And she found a woman who I knew was not right for me. And I was in New York and I'm sure you you wouldn't know Terry McDonald, but Terry is a very celebrated uh, magazine editor. Long time, he was editor of Rolling Stone, Esquire, long time editor of... uh, Sports Illustrated, his son, Nick, is a writer in his own regard and still a client of mine. Terry's kind of your basic, you know, um, New York Irish literary tough guy with a heart of gold. And I'm sitting with him, we're having a drink, and I'm telling him, this is, you know, I'm working with this really exceptional freelance editor. If you'd like, I'll introduce you to him. And his name is Bob Rowe, R-O-E, I guess I'm his agent. And he, at the time, was deputy editor of Newsweek. At one time, was editor of Newsweek. And I've really learned a lot and such working with Bob. But Kathy read the last pass, which I thought was going to be it. Not good enough. So now I'm trying to deal with what do I have to do? And as you can imagine, I don't have all that much time, given all the other priorities in my life. So it's, it's humbling. Yeah, but it's still there. It's still being worked still on. Still there, it. yeah. Yeah, we'll see it. We'll see it on a bookshelf one day, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope you're right <laughs> from your lips. Well, before um, we wrap up, I did, yeah, I did yeah. want to ask one, one yeah. last question, yeah, which sure. was um, you negotiated the biggest book-to-film deal for Airframe for Michael Crichton uh, yeah. for, uh, at the time anyway, and a very close runner-up for Hannibal for Tom Saris. I just wanted to ask, how did those, how does that stuff come about? What was, what, what, what was the kind of tale behind that? Well, as I, the thing with Airframe was that it was, um, you know, Michael was just that was post Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. and Warren and he, as I recall, Warner Brothers wanted to buy it, 
And they offered what you would think was a lot of money, but it really wasn't as much money as I thought we could get. So we passed on this huge offer and Joe Roth had called me. He had just taken over Disney and said, I want to make a big splash. What's going on with Michael Crichton's new book? And it just sort of was one of those serendipitous things that it all came together in that way. And the post, uh, 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 you know, uh, mortem actually is that the movie never got made. Yeah. And Michael being Michael paid back most of the money because he oh. felt guilty about getting all that money. But the irony of that is because he didn't pay back all the money, Disney still owns the rights. Okay. Oh, so we. Wow. That's interesting. And in terms of Hannibal, actually, if you, I would like one story I would like to tell you if we have time is, yeah, sil- is the Silence of the Lamb story. Yeah, yeah, please, yes, do. please, yeah. So, as you know, Manhunter was based on the earlier book that Michael Mann directed with Brian Cox now, of all people, yeah. and it was not a success. And it was originally a deal by made at Warner Brothers, they passed on it. Dino De Laurentiis picked up the Warner's contract. So in fact, it was made based on a Warner's contract, not a Dino De Laurentiis contract. And at, at that point, Mort Janklow, Janklow and Nesbitt in New York had gotten uh, to represent Thomas. And so he sent Silence of the Lambs to me, which was a sequel, right? Mm-hmm. To, to the first book. And nobody was interested, whether it was it was a serial killer and it was on the bestseller list at a point. And it was just so really frustrating. And I remember hearing that there was negative coverage at Paramount, which Ned Tannen was the head of Paramount at the time. And I called Ned Tannen and I said, Ned, I've never asked you this before. I know you got negative coverage of Silence of the Lambs. Will you do me a favor and give it to a different reader? I don't expect you to read it. Different reader with a different sensibility and tell me what that reader says. He goes, absolutely. He calls me three days later. He said, I gave it to the other reader. Readers coverage is highly recommended. We're still not buying it (laughs) is what I was up against. So Fred Spector, who was one of my closest colleagues at CAA and had his 89th birthday last week and is still going as strong as ever. I love Fred came into my office one day and says, what's happening with silence of the lambs. I said, the rights are available. Why? He goes, Gene Hackman wants to buy it. I go, really? He goes, yeah, he wants to buy it. He's going to direct it and he's going to play Hannibal Lecter. I said, that's fantastic. Oh, just one other thing is that Dino DeLorenis owned the rights. He obviously had the first, it was an author written sequel. So he has, you know, first First, right. And he said, I don't want to do it because the failure of the other movie, but under the contract, I couldn't use character names or places from the original book. Okay. Okay. So anyway, so uh, Gene Hackman, and I go, great, let's make it. He says, Arthur Krim, who was, you know, then head of Orion and one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life, forget the business, um, head, you know, founder of Orion, he's going to go 50-50 with Gene. I go, great. So we make the deal. And a month later, whatever, Fred comes into my office and says, I'm, I'm re- really embarrassed. And I said, why? He goes, 
Gene's daughter read the book and said, Daddy, you're not making this movie. <laughs> so Gene went back to Arthur Krim and said, Arthur, I'm sorry, I, I'll just eat my share. He goes, no, 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 Gene, I'm buying you out. I don't work that way. Don't worry about it. Now, Arlene Donovan, who I knew very, was an agent at ICM in New York, had called me about Ted Talley because Ted Talley wanted to adapt it. And I said, your old friend, Bob Sherman, who had been originally an agent and then a Fox executive, had been Gene Hackman's agent, lived in Santa Fe where Gene lived, and he was going to produce it. He said, call Bob Sherman. Bob Sherman hires Ted Talley. That's how Ted Talley gets the job. So now Arthur gives the book to Jonathan Demme, who is my client, who's passed oh. on it. <laughs> Jonathan Demi decides, yeah, Arthur wants me to do it. I'm going to do it. And that's how the whole thing got started. Right? <laughs> and then, oh, and then they call me at one point and said, you know, we really would like to be able to use the original character names and places. And I said, let me call Dino. Now, if I had called the studio, they would have said, forget about it. Read the contract. Dino says, Give me some little quid pro quo. I think I improved the television passive royalties or something for him, right? That's why it's Hannibal Lecter, which created the ability to be able to sell the sequel for $10 million. Which is nuts because I always wondered why the Sounds of the Lambs rights were separate from Red Dragon, Hannibal, etc. And they were always two different places. And it's, it's always just because that they were... Why. That's why, yeah. That's interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. Is that correct? Oh, and, and so it's just, you know, that's why the business is so fascinating. You just yeah. never know when, you know, what the next twist or twist Yeah, is. no, it sounds like yeah. there's never a double and day. you know I'm in the movie. Oh, are you in the movie? Screen appearance. Who do you play? Who do you play? Rick Nasita, who I have to give a shout out to. We represented Jonathan together. And Rick Nasita's two great sayings that I live by. One is the job of the agent is to tell the truth artfully. Both words are very hard to do. And in fact, I think it's true in life. And the other is sometimes the best thing to do is nothing, which is harder than it sounds because we're in a business where your clients expect you to do something. Mm -hmm. And you say, yeah, but something <laughs> I'm doing is nothing. Anyway, that's Rick. So we're both in the scene when Dr. Lecter comes to the airport on the, on the airplane. He's in the, on the gurney, yeah, 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 face yeah. mask. Black Limo pulls up with Senator Martin, played by Diane Baker, yeah. and the Justice Department official, played by Ron Vlader, who has two assistants, Rick and me. That's <laughs> brilliant. The one that hands over the documents of uh, Dr. Lecter's relaxed confinement, and I'm the one that opens a little notebook at the end and takes notes when he describes Buffalo Bill. <laughs> That's so, amazing. Uh, so oh, I'm going to have to rewatch okay, that the, film now. The, the conclusion of the story is Jonathan Demme's next movie was Philadelphia. Yeah. And he says to me and Rick, I'm giving you speaking parts. Now, when you get a speaking part, you have to get what's known as a Taft-Hartley exemption. Because we were, you know, we had non-speaking yeah. roles, which means basically you get one free deal and then you have to join SAG, Screen mm -hmm. Actors Guild. So there's a conference call. Rick and me... Ed Saxon, his partner, Chris Lee, the TriStar executive, Bob Montgomery, his lawyer, and his best friend from growing up. I remember, my, I'm going to repeat my dialogue. I think we have time for it. Ready? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I got tapped hardly because of, yeah. And of course, 
if you watch the movie, Tom Hanks is Andrews in the AIDS clinic. He goes to the office. Anna DeVere Smith, his assistant, says, Andrew, your conference call is on line one. Cut to the next scene. <laughs> so when Cameron Crowe wrote a part for me and Jerry Maguire, I had to join SAG and they wouldn't let me join. They said, you're taking the part of a legitimate actor. We won't let you join. And oh. so he wrote the part out of the movie. That's oh, no way. And you yeah. hadn't even had your, your role. Correct. So, but I'm in silence. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that, that's, that, that's been great, Bob. But before we go, we've yeah. still got time. We always ask every guest uh, the same questions at the end of yeah. our episodes. The first of which is, what was the last book that you read? The last book that I read was called 1861 by Adam Goodhart. And it is starts with Lincoln's election in November 1860 and ends with Lincoln's first official speech as president, July 4th, 1861. And it's written like a novel. It's cool. extraordinary, extraordinary. And I, as I said, I was a European history major, but the one part of American history is sort of slavery, civil war, reconstruction. And I learned so much in this book. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, nice. Great. That sounds really good. Um, what about the last film that you watched? The last film that I watched, because I can remember with the last TV, you know, actually, I'll tell you what the last film that I watched, and I watched it because it was on um, it, it was on a Criterion channel. I'd never see it as Fritz Lang's Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Don't waste your time. I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I won't bother. 1954, that. just not good. Um, before that, what did I see before that? I saw, I saw Yojimbo, oh, nice which thing. actually I really thought was pretty great. And I saw, I saw with my, believe it or not, my 29 year old son, we watched Grand Illusion together. One of my three favorite films and just to see that kid absorb it. It was just so meaningful to me. So that's, uh, oh, and I saw the Novotny, um, uh, documentary, which is terrific. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. And a TV show that you're watching or have watched? I, well, you know, I'm still not through uh, Line of Duty. Oh, yeah. Three seasons. It's so <laughs> great. I, As I said, I watched Tokyo Vice and yeah. I watched uh, Slow Horses. Oh, yeah. It yeah. was really good yeah. also. Yeah. And But my favorite series, which I'll just throw out there because most people haven't even heard of it, is called The French Village. And it's mm. a French series that episode one see the village is a fictional village called a uh, villeneuve in the in the uh, jura so it's near the near the um swiss border first episode one season one may 1940 the germans have invaded end of episode one season one june 1940 france has surrendered and villeneuve finds itself just north of the demarcation line in nazi occupied france and now what's brilliant about this is you meet all these people in Villeneuve who you're going to live with, except the ones who don't live, because every year is a, a season is a different year. So 40, 41, 42, oh, 42. Cool. It's yeah. absolutely extraordinary. extraordinary. Nice. I'll have to check that. I've never heard of that that's before. That's my, no, it's amazing. It's somebody I know said, you will never heard of this, Bob, but I know your taste. You'll really like this. Cool. Excellent. Awesome. Oh, the, the, Final, final thing we always yeah. do is a super quick fire, either yeah. or. And I always say there's no right answer apart from one. So we'll okay. we'll start off with Jurassic Park or Westworld. Jurassic Park. 
uh, an, another easy one. Well, because I made the deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's be fair. Uh, it's kind of like Sophie's Choice. <laughs> uh, TV or cinema? Cinema. Yeah. Uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Um, early Bird. Uh, a fancy restaurant or a takeout? Well, that's kind of a, there are other choices, but if those are the two fancy <laughs> restaurants. And the last one, real book or ebook? Oh, what's an ebook? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer that's disappointed Tarek. He's a big oh, man. Advocate. I was, uh, yeah. yeah. The number of people that pick real well, you can see time. behind. I yeah, no. With the shelf like that, I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, if you read an ebook, you can't like you know, I know, put it it's on the true, shelf. It's true. I, I love right? having them. Exactly, yeah, it's true. Yeah, you need to buy both. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks very much for tuning in. Uh, as usual, if you enjoyed it, please do take the time to give us a rating and review on your favourite podcast app and make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. Please also give us a follow on Twitter or your other social favourite social media accounts at UK page one and drop us a message if you want to get in touch. Uh, otherwise, have a great week and join us next episode for another special chat. Thank you.